can you imagine having never received a gift before? And through the work of these shoe boxes, people around the world are receiving a gift for the first time in a practical way, receiving the love of Jesus in a spiritual, emotional way, hearing the good news about Jesus. If you would like to fill up one of these shoe boxes, there's shoe boxes uh, to my right and to my left on the other side of the auditorium and in the foyer. By all means, grab those, uh, work together with a ki- um, your own kids or nieces or nephews or grandkids or fill it up yourself as you share um, the good news in a practical way. We're going to be collecting those shoe boxes November 12th to 18th. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for the desire of Ellerslie to reach its community, to share the good news of Jesus with our friends, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with the people we go to school with, and the people we hang out and play with. And God, the topic of evangelism can be a scary one not only to preach, but also to hear about what does that mean, what does that look like, and how do we do it more effectively. May we be encouraged and inspired this morning that my words would fall down and your words would be lifted up so that you would speak to each and every one of us in this room telling us exactly what you need us to hear. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's start with some congregation participation. Maybe the scariest words you can hear on a Sunday morning. Last week, I took the Sunday off, and I went to a local church, and he, uh, the preacher asked a number of questions, and he asked us to raise our hand if we thought it was one way or the other way. And you always felt foolish. I am not going to do that to you. I promise that while it's a personal question, you don't have to bare your soul. You don't have to say anything personal. All you have to do is raise your hand, and the best part of all, you can't be wrong. So here's the question. What is your favorite novel or your favorite movie of all time? It has to be a story. You can't pick a book on leadership or a book on wellness. You can't pick a TV show or a documentary. What is your favorite story? And if you're like some of my friends that watch a couple movies a week or read a couple books a week, just think of the first one that comes to mind. You got it? First question, raise your hand. How many of you have a good story? Their story has a good introduction. Got few hands, more than the first service. I can tell you in complete honesty, my favorite movie, my favorite book, I don't even remember how they began. But maybe if it started something like this, I would remember a little bit more. You're going to remember the intro to this message for a little while, aren't you? (laughs) Me too, welts all over. I think James Bond and Mission Impossible movies have this type of beginning, right? It starts off with a bang. Most James Bond movies, the ones that I'm thinking of anyways, always have that big explosion at the very start. What's going on? What's happening? Who's fighting who? And why is it all taking place? I think Mission Impossible does the same. That role of the first act is to establish conflict. Sometimes it happens right from the opening scene, like Mission Impossible and James Bond, but sometimes it takes a few chapters of a book or 15 to 20 minutes of a movie. But the bulk of the story, 
why our favorite story is our favorite story is that middle act where the added complications take place, where we get taken on a journey. How many twists and turns until we figure out who committed the crime? Will the guy ever get the girl? Will that that small little rebellion take down the evil empire? It's probably why our favorite story has become our favorite story. I don't think I need to ask you to raise your hand. It's expected in the question. Act three of a three-act play is the resolution. Here's the question I'm really curious about. How many of you, your favorite story, have a good ending? All right, most of you. I don't know if all of you, but most of you. I can't tell you how many times I've read a book, watched a movie, and the ending was a little disappointing. I think I'm honestly more surprised when the book or movie ends well than when it's just rather flat. A couple of years ago, I was on vacation, and I had a book with me, and the book was excellent. I was reading it on the beach. I was reading it in my hotel room. I was reading it um, before bed. I just couldn't get enough of this book, and I wanted to know how it ended. And it was clever, but it wasn't great. In fact, the author actually wrote a piece at the back of the book saying that after a thousand pages, I still didn't know how to wrap this up, and it showed. But at the same time, there's movies like The Usual Suspects or The Sixth Sense. As movies, they're okay, but the endings are brilliant. Today we're wrapping up a six-part series entitled All In, in which we've walked through our values here at Ellerslie. The first week we had a guest speaker, Sid Coop, and he talked about what it meant to be all in. Over the last five weeks, myself and Pastor Mel have walked through the core values that we have here at Ellerslie, and we've used this idea of story to wrap it all, to, to hold it all together. Surrender to God's word, Pastor Mel talked about based on a true story. Transforming gospel, you can change your story. Generous worship, embracing the author of our story. Courageous community, are you living out the story? And today, inescapable mission, inviting others into the story. All of us in this room have our favorite stories, whatever genre that might be. And today I want to talk about what it means to invite others into a story, a better story, a story with a God-inspired ending. There's going to be challenges along the way, certainly, but the resolution, I believe, will leave us in awe and wonder. Will you be a part of that better story? If you're taking notes, first part of the outline this morning, Act 1, Establish Conflict. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to Genesis chapter 1. Should be really easy to find. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible or don't own one, you can borrow the uh, Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you this morning. And if you're thinking, I'd like to have my Bible with me wherever I go. Um, there's a screen that's going to pop up behind me that talks about how um, an app that you can download no matter what device you use. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Before the creation of the world, God existed absolutely perfect, living in complete harmony with himself. God didn't need to create humanity, but he thought to himself, the joy, the peace, the love that I'm experiencing, I want to share it with more people. 
And so he created humanity. He created us to experience everything he has to offer. He spoke the world into existence. Verses 3 to 5. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. On the second day, God created the heavens and the earth. And days 3 through 5, he started filling it up. He placed the stars and the planets and the galaxy above us. He made birds to fill up the air. He made beasts to fill up the land. He made fish to fill up the sea. And then on the sixth day, God created humanity. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, that's a pretty darn good intro. Chapter 1 ends with these words, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Remember how the first act of that story works. Establish conflict. There is no conflict. Adam and Eve are living in absolute perfection. They can see God face to face. They can talk to him whenever they want. They are living in a place that is absolutely stunningly beautiful, and life is perfect. What could possibly go wrong? Well, we've got, a hundred, uh, we've got about a thousand pages to go, so something is obviously going to go awry. Skimming over chapter 2, here's one thing you need to know. God promised paradise to Adam and Eve as long as they obeyed one command. Don't eat the fruit of the forbidden tree. If you eat it, you will surely die. Chapter 3. Enter the devil, the ultimate bad guy, and he slithers up to Eve in the form of a snake, and the very first thing he does is he questions God's goodness. Chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Skipping down to verses 4 and 5, you will not die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. The temptation is too much for Adam and Eve. What would happen if they eat the forbidden fruit? Surely God wouldn't kill them. What possibly could happen if they had one little bite? Everything. They were cast out of the garden, never to return. Their bodies would grow old and ache from labor. Ultimately, they would die, and the curse of death be passed on to every generation that follows, including us here today. I think we can safely say conflict has been established. You might be familiar with a couple verses later in the Bible from Romans chapter 3 and chapter 6. When combined, they say this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the penalty of that sin is death. Act one, conflict established. And then we enter act two. And we have the added complication. Most of you in this room would believe Romans chapter three and Romans chapter six and would go, yep, sounds good, sounds great. Some of you in this room go, sin? I don't know. Not sure I've done it. 
it's probably affected me, but I'm not sure I believe it. The culture would probably agree with that. This is a sermon about evangelism, about sharing the good news of Jesus and everything he's done for us. But how do you share about a Savior with a world that doesn't think it needs saving? It's complicated. I may have told this story before, but I think it's worth retelling. About a dozen years ago, shortly before I became a pastor, I was working full-time in a restaurant. And my shift had ended as a number of my coworkers, and we were all grabbing a bite to eat together. When one of my friends looked at me and she goes, Dave, why would you be a priest? I don't remember exactly what I said, but it went something like this. You know, I believe all of us have sinned. We've done something wrong, and I believe that all of us need a Savior. And to spend the rest of my life telling people about Jesus, I can't think of a better way to use my life. And then one girl jumped into the conversation, and she said, but what about people like us, people who have never sinned before? I was taken aback. What do you mean you've never sinned? Have you never lied or spoken poorly behind someone's back or taken something that wasn't yours? And she replied, of course I have. But those are just mistakes. Sins are something like rape and murder. I believe she's wrong. I believe she's sinned. But how is disagreeing with her in that moment going to change things? How do you share about a savior with a world that doesn't think it needs saving? It's complicated. Another one of my friends posted something on Facebook. This is a couple years ago. And she said, why are Christians always telling people that they're sinners? And then when I look at science, science tells me that I am beautifully and wonderfully made. I am done with any more conversations about faith. We can argue at length about my friend's statement, and there's certainly much to discuss. Or we could pause and we could realize that her perception is her reality. Maybe by starting off by talking about sin isn't the best approach to tell people about the greatness of Jesus. But now you have a whole new set of challenges. If we don't talk to people about sin, how will we ever tell them they need a savior? It's starting to get really complicated. Why don't I throw in another curveball? If you're mid-30s or older, following slide is probably true for you of a picture of a train and you were probably told tell people the facts give them evidence that demands a verdict they'll choose to believe in Jesus and their feelings will just naturally follow that's no longer true for many people in our culture feelings drive the train not facts this is true in politics and religion and sports and family. People grab a hold of a belief or a person and find every way to support that ideology while tearing down the opposite. So how do you impact culture? It's complicated. One of the reasons I enjoy reading great books, diving into well-written fantasy and stories, because it encourages us to think differently. It encourages us to tell a better story. How does a hobbit take a little ring and travel to the depths of Mordor to destroy it against all odds? How will a beaten down daughter capture the heart of a prince? 
How does a teenager defeat the greatest wizard who has ever lived? How does a small rebellion take down an evil empire? How will the detective catch the criminal mastermind? How will the Avengers defeat Thanos? Tell a better story. A few years ago, I was at a preaching conference, and the keynote speaker talked about the importance of intellectual integrity while preaching and teaching. People don't want Christian platitudes or bumper sticker doctrine. That doesn't work in the real world. You have to give something that's going to impact people's lives, something that's going to impact their homes, something that's going to impact their schools and their workplaces. Then he told his own story. He's a well-known pastor living in the city of Chicago, and he was invited to speak to a group of Christian businessmen who met weekly downtown. One week he was a little crunched for time, and he rushed to put something together, and he knew it wasn't his best, but it sounded good, it would work in a pinch, and so he stood in front of this group of Christian businessmen, all dressed in suits, in the power of downtown Chicago, and when he finished telling his message, one of the guys stood up and says, that crap doesn't work. one of our biggest fears in sharing Jesus. Maybe it's what that Christian businessman said. What if our friend looks at us and says, that doesn't work. With every ounce of integrity, here's what I believe is one possible solution to bridge the gap. One idea that every one of us in this room can do, and it's on the screen behind me. Tell a better complicated. It's going to take a lot of work, but it might just change your friend's life and their eternity. Let's go back to my friend in the restaurant. She doesn't believe she's ever sinned. How would you bridge the gap and tell her a better story? Remember, she's acknowledged she's made mistakes. She's hurt others in the past. She's been hurt herself. What would you say to her? Here's one possibility. What if we ask her, describe a time in your life in which you were hurt? She gets a little bit quiet. Her eyes are downcast. You can see the pain in what she's about to share with you. And then she begins to open up. I loved my boyfriend. We were together for three years. We lived together for two of those years. I didn't know if we were ever going to get married, but life was really good. Then I caught him cheating on me. The word sin doesn't have to be present to know that he badly missed the mark and he fell way short of expectations. Our response would probably be one of compassion and empathy, understanding the pain that comes through broken relationships. And I think the next question would come fairly naturally. How did you deal with that? Who knows what her answer would be? Bitterness, a one-night stand, a downward spiral, emptiness. There are plenty of ways it could go. But it opens the doors for us to tell her a better story. Whether we take her to Jesus right away or whether we just tell a story of forgiveness in our own lives and how it's impacted us, how it's impacted the person who hurt us, how it's impacted our minds as we move forward after that day. We live in one of the most affluent times in the history of the world. 
my friend who made the comment, Christianity says I'm a sinner. Well, my life is looking pretty good right now. What would you say to a friend who wants for nothing? My friend who made that comment on Facebook has a pretty great life. Her and her husband make really good money. They're a good-looking couple. They drive luxury cars. They live in a nice home. They vacation and eat out whenever they want. How does their story get any better? What would you say to them? Perhaps you could ask them, what is it that you're striving for? They might pause before giving you an answer, and they say, I don't know. A nicer home, success for the kids, early retirement. By no means am I saying we should discount such things. But the follow-up question could be, and then what? You might be familiar with the quote by C.S. Lewis that reads, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. There is a better story. We can tell them about the riches and the glory of heaven, that heaven is going to be so wonderful, so beautiful, so magnificent that the streets are going to be paved with gold, that the homes that we are going to be living in will put the homes on million-dollar listing to shame. We could tell them about an eternal vacation and that nothing on earth would come close in comparison. We could talk to them about the joy that we'll find in working in heaven, in which we can create and build, and it will be stunningly beautiful. We can tell them that they don't have to strive because it's already been accomplished. Then we could invite them to join us on mission, to use their resources for good. I realize my sermons are approximately 33-minute monologues. And I understand that nobody is on this platform debating me right now. And you might be sitting in your seat going, Dave, I don't think that works either. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But don't you long for a better story yourself, let alone what the community around us is longing for. Now here's the thing, I didn't just ramble those two stories off. I put a lot of thought. If I were to interact with those two people today, what would I say to them? How would I help them to see a better story? It was a lot of work, and I'm reading from a manuscript. The lives of our friends are complicated, and there's no way one sermon or a series of sermons could be an exhaustive list of human emotions and cover all the backgrounds, let alone the individual nuances that all of us wrestle with. But don't you want a better story? In the midst of loneliness, we can tell stories of acceptance. In the midst of brokenness, we can tell stories of healing. In the midst of divorce, tell stories of a heavenly wedding feast in which there is a groom who loves them. In the midst of darkness, tell stories of light. In the midst of failure, stories of forgiveness. In the midst of hardship, stories of hope, we can tell a better story. And here's why we can tell a better story. Because we know how it ends. Acts 3 is the resolution. Perhaps the most well-known verse in Scripture is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The reason that we're on mission for God is because he sent his Son on mission for us. 
I'm coming up on my two-year anniversary here at Ellerslie. And over the last two years, I think Pastor Mel has recommended two or three books from the pulpit. And so over the course of a hundred weeks, I think if he's only bringing it up two or three times, I should take note. And a number of months ago, he brought up the, the book, The Pursuing God. If you're looking for a book that's an easy yet beautifully fascinating read about what God has done for us, I encourage you to pick this up. And the op- this next illustration comes from the opening chapters. Imagine with me for a moment that God is an incredible artist. It shouldn't be too hard to do that. We can look at the world around us. We can think about the mountains. We can think about the beautiful fall colors. That's a reality. And he is painting the most stunning picture you have ever seen. The mountains look strong and powerful, towering above the rest of creation. The lakes beneath, partially in shadow, partially in their own radiance, are smooth as glass. The trees just off the beach, a vast array of the different types. In the space between the trees and the mountain are birds circling in beauty. The land is filled with animals, with deer, with moose, with bears. There's two people sitting on the beach, enjoying every glorious moment. The picture is absolutely perfect. Any one of us would hang it up on a wall in our home. But then as you're looking at it, something starts to happen. For the people where this murky blackness starts to creep into the painting. The more you watch, the more the painting is ruined. It starts by affecting the man and his wife, and then it begins to expand to all creation around it. The artist loves the painting, but it's been ruined. So what does God do? He takes that painting off of the wall. He puts it in front of himself, and he steps right into it. God doesn't run away from us. We are running away from him. Jesus enters the painting. He is romancing us in the midst of a war zone, and he saves us at the cost of his own life. To quote Joshua Butler, the question here is one of movement. Who's running from whom? As we've seen, God searches in the garden. We duck in the bushes. God comes down from the mountain. We back into the desert. God shines like the sun. We crawl in the shadows. God God wants intimacy. We prefer to be left alone. God loves us, but we love darkness. Relentless pursuit, the greatest story ever told. But showing up isn't enough. You still have to do something. Romans 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome says this, greater love has no man than this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our sins have to be punished. And perhaps the culture around us doesn't like the word sin. That's fine. Choose a different phrase they can relate to. We fall short of other people's expectations. We miss the mark when it comes to living a perfect life. Let's be honest. Do we even meet our own standards, let alone the standards of those around us? Someone has to pay for that shortcoming. Someone might say, well, why can't God just forgive us? Just wave his magical wand. Everybody's forgiven. 
Imagine I come over to your house. No one's going to want to invite me over after I tell this story. And you say, just park in the driveway, Dave. And I pull up, and my foot accidentally hits the gas instead of the brake, and I crash through your garage door. And I come in, and I am overly apologetic. I am so sorry for what I've done. I can't believe I've done this. That is completely unacceptable. And you look at me and you just think, oh boy, you know, it's okay. I forgive you. And I look at you and I say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But here's the question, who pays for your garage door? You do. Boone Show, stop laughing at me. The only way you're forgiving, the only way we're forgiven is through the shedding of blood. And we have two choices. We can either pay the penalty ourselves and spend eternity in hell, or we can accept the blood of Jesus, believe in him, and spend eternity in heaven. Jesus' death offers us life, and that's a much, much better story. beautiful verse written in the second letter to Corinthians. It says this, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. We can tell the world a better story because Jesus offers us a better story. In the midst of loneliness, as I said earlier, we tell stories of acceptance. In the midst of brokenness, we tell stories of healing. In the midst of divorce, we tell of someone who loves us. In the midst of darkness, we tell stories of light. In the midst of failure, we tell stories of forgiveness. In the midst of hardship, we tell stories of hope. In the midst of death, we tell stories of life. We tell them a better story. And the reason we're on mission for God is because he came on mission for us. Realize that on Sunday mornings, most of you in this room have already committed yourselves to following Jesus. But some of you haven't quite crossed that line. You were invited to church this morning, and you're thinking, oh great, my friend invited me to a sermon on evangelism. kept driving by and you thought, there's a big building on the corner of Ellerslie and Highway 2. Why do so many people gather there every Sunday? Someone who loves you very much said, you know what, maybe you should check out spirituality. Maybe you should check out Christianity and see what the big fuss is all about. And you're sitting here this morning and you're hearing a sermon on evangelism and you're hearing about how this conflict entered the world. And you look at your life and you think, wow, there's a lot of complication. And then you hear the good news of that resolution and what Jesus has done for you. And you say, I want in. Today, will you believe in Jesus? Will you say, God, I don't know what that means. I have lots of questions. I don't know who to talk to, but I want in because that story is way better than the story I'm living right now. If you want to take that step, I'll be at the Connect booth on the other side of the front door. No one will know what you're talking to me about. Come and say hi. Let's talk about a better story. Let's wrap this up. I want to encourage all of us to tell better stories. One with God-inspired ending. I want us to look at our family members, our friends, our small group, and say, how can I share the gospel? 
How can I tell about the good news of Jesus? Will you help me? Will you encourage me? Will you talk with me about how I can talk with others? Here's a few steps along the way. First, pray. When you think to yourself, here are a couple of people I'm going to pray for regularly. Who comes to mind? Is it three people? A couple of couples? I was talking to one person and they rattled off ten. They're way popular than me. About three months ago, I added a new person to my list. Longtime friend, lives on the other side of the um, city. And I thought, I just don't see him that much, but I care about him. I started praying for him, and within a couple of weeks, he contacted me twice. I've been living in the south side of Edmonton in a new home for a little over a year, and he said, hey, I'm finally in the south side. Can I stop by and say hi? We hung out for two and a half hours, and part of that conversation was about spiritual things. The second time he contacted me, he said, my team really needs a goalie for soccer. Are you in? So if you see me limping, now you know why. Second, can you invite people? Did you notice your cards in your worship guides this morning? Those are invitation cards. Can you invite a friend to Phil Calloway and say, we've got a brand new auditorium that's taking place at our church. It used to be a gym. We're calling it the West Court. It is beautiful. We're bringing in a comedian who's a Christian. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about parenting. It's going to be funny. You want to come with me? Two weeks ago, we had a child dedication take place right here. Many of you probably saw it take place. And knowing that his child was going to be dedicated, the dad invited, I believe, four of his friends from work. Three of them said yes. That's awesome. Another one of my friends recently had a baby, and I said, hey, when do you think you'll um, dedicate your little daughter? And they said, we want to wait until we're in the new West Court. We think our friends are going to love it. Third thing, can you include somebody? Starting next week, maybe you normally attend the first service, maybe um, you normally attend the second service, but next week our balcony is going to be closed. First service, will be, uh, where the traditional worship service will be, um, all on one floor. Both the first and the second service in the West Court, all on one floor. We're going to start seeing people we didn't even know attended our church. Perhaps you can ask them a question. How are you connected? I'd like to invite you to my small group. I'd like you to invite, I'd like to invite you to serve with me in the kitchen, on the worship team, in tech. I was talking to somebody, and I think it was back in May, he was talking to uh, someone who's in my small group, and I hadn't met this guy yet. And I said, hey, um, welcome to our church. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm new here. And I said, hey, would you like to be part of our small group? Then totally forgot to add him to the email list. This past week, I was thinking, how come this individual hasn't responded yet? Check my email list and think, oh, shoot, totally forgot to invite him. So I called him up. He almost started to cry and said, I thought you had forgotten about me. I would love to come to your small group. Fourth thing, practice hospitality. Lives are changed over the dinner table. My wife and I stretched our budget and we stepped into a house after living in a duplex for a number of years. Not all of us live in homes. All of us can be hospitable. 
and you might be saying, Dave, I live in a one-bedroom condo. It's not that big. I have a friend. She's in a two-bedroom condo. She has 10 to 12 people in her condo once a month. You might think, Dave, I, I don't have a lot of money. Don't invite them over for supper. Invite them over for brownies, for dessert. Buy a pie from the superstore. Practice hospitality. Invite people into your home so that you can laugh together, that you can play games together, so that you can watch a sporting event together, so that you can have fun together, and that you can do life together. Let's tell our friends a better story. God's story. Let's change the world. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this sermon series on our values. I thank you that as you wrap up the book of Matthew, your son Jesus looks at his disciples and says, go out into all the world and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the days. And God, I think most of us in this room know we should do it, but it's scary. God, forgive us when we know we should have talked and we haven't. And fill us with your spirit so that we would have boldness and courage so that when that opportunity comes along again, we would tell people about Jesus. We would tell them a better story and we would invite them to enter into your story. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.